Hello and welcome back to Palestine Deep Dive. My name is Ahmed Al-Nawq and I'm a Palestinian journalist from Gaza, based in the UK now. I'm a co-founder and director of We Are Not Numbers, a project dedicated to celebrating the stories of Palestinians, especially young Palestinians enduring Israel's ongoing 55-year military occupation. And today, I'm delighted to be hosting this important show, expanding upon our previous coverage of Al Jazeera's groundbreaking documentary series, The Labor Files. So last month, our regular host, Mark Seddon, was joined by celebrated journalist and columnist Peter Oborn, who featured in The Labor Files, as well as by award-winning producer, Richard Sanders, who made the series. Together, they went deeper into the revelations of the documentary presented. They addressed the ongoing silence of the mainstream media to the series and the alleged inaccuracies broadcasted by BBC in its panorama investigation titled Is Labour Anti-Semitic? They also addressed the reported hierarchy of racism Al Jazeera depicts within the Labour Party, as well as the claims that many ordinary members of the Labour Party had been accused of anti-Semitism for simply criticizing Israel's decade-long apartheid and military occupation over the Palestinian people. Many suspected at the time that this was part of factional war wielded by the right of the party, something the documentary alludes to. But today, and perhaps more importantly of all, I'm here to help present the perspective and amplify the voices of the Palestinians with regards to the revelation presented in this series. After all, it is our voices, the Palestinian voices, whether it be by us enduring uh, occupation on the ground in the Gaza Strip or the West Bank, or us trying to articulate our own discourse and the nature of our oppression in the UK and elsewhere, that seems to be censored, sidelined, or spoken over. But the reality is that no one can speak for us and no one can better understand or explain the true nature of our oppression than us, the Palestinians. So I thank my colleague Mark Seddon for making space for me today to lead on this important show. Today, we will be hearing from a range of Palestinians here from the UK and all the way to Gaza itself to hear what they think about how the Labour Party has reportedly been treating its members, especially those who have stood up for Palestinian rights. We'll be hearing from two Palestinians who featured in the series, renowned Palestinian author, activist and physician Dr. Ghada Karmi, and the British-Palestinian-Iraqi researcher, campaigner and co-founder of Palestine Action, Huda Amouri. And then we head to Gaza to hear from Palestinian journalist Hassan Adwan. But before then, I'm delighted to welcome back Richard Sanders, senior producer on the Labour Files, to ask him uh, some more important questions. Welcome back to Palestine Deep Dive, Richard. It's great Thank to have you with us once more. Thank you for having me, Ahmed. Thank you. So firstly, I would like to begin by asking you about how have you found the reception of the Labour Files since we last spoke? Has there been any more interest from the mainstream media? And if not, why do you think that is? Well, it's no, there hasn't really been any more. Uh, John Ware, who presented the panorama that we criticised, has written a very lengthy piece um, contesting, I mean, really only a part of one of the four allegations we made about that panorama programme. Uh, so that's happened. Other than that, no, it continues to be almost in, entirely um, ignored. 
Um, one or two people have tweeted about it, but the, the mainstream media has to, is just treating it as if it didn't happen. But we're talking about the biggest leaks of uh, documents in the British history. Like it was a huge leaks, a huge uh, accusations. And wh why do you think no one cared to uh, mention or? Oh, well, I think there are, there are various reasons. Obviously, the Labour Party is very keen for no one to talk about this. Also, really, our series is quite critical of the British media. <laughs> so the British media isn't terribly keen to talk about it either. But also, as you probably know, there's been this enormous political crisis here in Britain. Um, the, the government has changed yet again. Uh, and the, gov the, the Labour Party is riding high. It's... Um, you know, feeling very triumphalist at the moment. So I, I think it's not a great moment. I think people aren't particularly interested in raking over the coals of the um, Corbyn era right now. Well, thank you very much, Richard. So something uh, which I found particularly moving for me as a Palestinian who was working on the ground as a journalist in Gaza during the March of Return was the footage you included in the documentary, connecting the dots between what was happening there uh, on the ground and what is happening here in the UK, in the Labour Party during that period. In the documentary, you interviewed Dr. Ghada Karmi and Huda Amouri about this. And from, uh, and from what you show, it seems to me that while I was there dodging bullets fired from Israel's snipers, and indeed, while I was, while I saw younger children murdered before my eyes as they peacefully protested their imprisonment in Gaza, the Labour Party was actually investigating some of its members who were speaking out against such violence. Can I ask you why, why uh, do you feel it, it was important for you to include Palestinian voices such as Huda's and Dr. Ghada Karmi's in your series? Yes, yeah, so throughout uh, this period, you know, even during the period when Jeremy Corbyn was not just leader of the Labour Party, but also had control of the Labour Party bureaucracy, even during that period, the Labour Party's disciplinary processes and its anti-racist spotlight was shone firmly away from a state which all of the world's leading human rights organisations agree is an apartheid state, Israel. It was, it was shining away from that and towards its victims. Um, this seemed to me to be outrageous. Um, I was very keen to make use of footage of Palestine and to talk about Palestine. Um, I think that during the whole anti-Semitism debate in the Labour Party, Palestine was somehow absent. Um, the, the context of Palestine was removed altogether. So people, Palestinian activists, pro-Palestinian activists, comments and quotes were often used against them, um, which appeared to come out of nowhere. Um, if you don't have the Palestinian context, people's anger and passion can, can, is, is harder to understand. Whereas when you're putting them in the context of events in, in Palestine, particularly during the summer of 2018, the spring and summer in 2018, and the Great March of Return, it's suddenly, at the very least, provides an alternative explanation for their passion and anger other than anti-Semitism. Well, thank you very much, Richard. In, your, um, in our previous interview with you, you mentioned how the conversation should really be about Zionism and anti-Zionism all along, rather than uh, focused on anti-Semitism. 
Can you please elaborate more on that? Well, I think that's right, because when you look at what people are being attacked for saying, it is almost always to do with Zionism or to do with Israel, or perhaps to do with the Labour Party's disciplinary procedures. Very, very rarely were people being um, disciplined for sort of conventional, old-fashioned, as it were, anti-Semitism. Now, the argument always was that, ah, they say Israel, they say Zionism, but they mean Jews. And on occasions, that may be true. And we, we found examples in the disciplinary files where that, that did seem to be true. But, but very rarely was any attempt made to, to prove this point. So effectively... Corbyn's critics were appropriating to themselves the right to say, ah, you mean Israel, you mean um, Zionism, but what you really, you're, that's what you're saying, but what you really mean is Jews. This obviously massively disempowers Palestinians and acts as a, a shield um, to the Israeli state. And in, in fact, what people were very often being attacked for was for questioning the basic tenets of Zionism as put into practice. If you take the view that, that Zionism as put into practice is an ideology of ethnic hegemony, it is a state whose defining feature um, is that it's structured to ensure the domination of one ethnicity over another, then the whole debate feels completely different. And my feeling was that that, that is actually what we need to be talking about. And, and that's the debate needs to be being had and, and as I said before while we're having the debate about anti-semitism it means we're not having the debate about Zionism in a, in a sense there is there is a in Britain in America in Western Europe generally there is a blind spot about Zionism there's a blind spot for very understandable reasons I think Europeans find it very difficult to view Israel through anything other than the prism of the Jewish experience in Europe and and in, and it's understandable they should do that in do, in, in doing in so doing they rather neglect seeing it from the Palestinian perspective, and I think what what Palestinian activists are trying to do in Europe is to remove that blind spot to show clearly what the nature of the the Israeli state is and so on, and um, I think a lot of what has happened over the last six years is a determined attempt to prevent them from refocusing that analysis of Israel, that vision of Israel. Oh, thank you. What seems apparent to me is that many people in the UK, even those well-meaning on the left, don't really understand the meaning uh, of the word Zionism and how it relates to the facts uh, on the ground in Palestine. For instance, in 2020, during the Labour leadership campaign, I am told that Rebecca Long-Bailey, the candidate who was uh, considered Corbyn's left-wing replacement, openly stated she was a Zionist, in turn alienating much of the left and, of course, the Palestinians. But surely us Palestinians who have endured ongoing siege, occupation, house demolitions, lost loved ones, this illegal incarceration and so much more should be the ones uh, to be asked to define what is the true meaning of Zionism. After all, Israel, as a self-declared Zionist entity, is a manifestation of such an ideology. And we have been at the sharp end of its oppression for decades. So 
do you feel that Palestinians are best placed to define what Zionism really means? And do you feel that Palestinian voices are heard or respected by the Labour Party today? Palestinian voices are not heard and respected uh, by the Labour Party today. And I think it's clearly the case that Palestinians are the world experts on Zionism. I mean, they're the ones who've had a direct experience of it for the last 80 years. I think, you know, the whole the whole business of what is referred to as the new anti-Semitism, which is basically to draw an equivalence between anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism, uh, and this is done through the IHRA definition and so on, has been incredibly effective. It effectively, in Britain, and I think to a degree in America and other Euro European countries, it is impossible to use the word Zionist and Zionism. It has come to acquire these terribly sinister connotations. And I think people have succeeded in, in imposing the view that when people say Zionist or Zionism, they mean Jews. And I've, of course, that's massively disempowering for, for Palestinians. I always say to people, imagine trying to combat apartheid uh, in South Africa in the 1980s without being allowed to use the word apartheid. Yeah. Well, this is very sad to hear. And so an, another angle we, we come on to is that after much internal and external pressure, Corbyn adopted the International Holocaust Remembrance, uh, Remembrance Alliance definition of anti-Semitism as Labour Party policy in 2018. So it's in, uh, since its inception, many Palestinians have raised concerns about the IHRA definition and its listed examples as it effectively silences us when it comes to articulating the full nature of our oppression at the hands of the Israeli ongoing violence uh, towards us. For example, 122 Palestinians and Arab academics, journalists and intellectuals expressed their concern about its adoption in an open letter published in The Guardian in 2020 saying, through examples that it provides the IHRA definition conflates Judaism with Zionism in assuming that all Jews are Zionists and that the state of Israel in its current reality embodies the self-determination of all Jews. Even the drafter of this definition, Kenneth Stern, has said it is now being wielded as a weapon. But for some, including Labour's Luke Erkhurst, the party's adoption of the definition still isn't enough. Erkhurst sits on Labour's uh, ruling National Executive Committee and who is director of the campaign called we Believe in Israel, whose recent, whose recent campaigns, by the way, includes supporting Israeli airstrikes in Gaza and a petition against the uh, author Sally Rooney for her support for BDS movement. He recently tweeted, quoting, happy to confirm that I don't believe people who oppose the IHRA definition of anti-Semitism should be allowed to be Labour parliamentary candidates. Watering to uh, wanting to water down the definition to some kinds of anti-Semitism are deemed okay isn't compatible with being a Labour candidate. So, let's look at one of the specific examples listed under the IHRA definition, which reads: denying the Jewish people the right to self-determination, e.g., by claiming the existence of a state of Israel is a racist endeavor. As a Palestinian myself, and as a Palestinian from Gaza, how can I sign up to this? Of course, we Palestinians regard the creation of a state built on the rubble of Palestinian homes as racist. 
about 750,000 Palestinians were ethnically cleansed from their homes during the Nakba, or a catastrophe, as we, uh, as we call it in 1948, when Israel established itself. When Israel claims it must contain itself as a Jewish state, what that means in practice is engineering a Jewish majority and preventing us Palestinians from returning home. And today, Israel colonial project continues on the ground, forcing Palestinians from their homes and imprisoning two million of us in Gaza. So there isn't a state of Israel. There is only this state of Israel. And we should start dealing with the realities not the abstract ideals of people's imagination. And that reality is a racist one. This definition takes away my ability as a Palestinian to describe my own lived realities and history accurately. So Richard, doesn't this make the IHRA definition in itself racist toward Palestinians? And if so, given the Labour Party has, given that the Labour Party has adopted it, can the party really be committed to combating all forms of racism as Keir Starmer, the current leader, claims? I, mean, I think you've put it very articulately um, yourself there. Um, it was very striking that the whole campaign um, relentlessly led towards the adoption of the IHRA definition. There's huge pressure on the Labour Party um, to adopt that and then not to have any free speech caveats. And, and you quite rightly home in on Article 7, which is essentially um, denies Palestinians the right to articulate their own history. And I think this goes back to the, the, the point I made about the West having a blind spot about the nature of um, Israel. You know, Israel in practice is a racist ethnostate masquerading as, as, as a Western democracy. And um, article, clause, example seven of the IHRA definition event basically forbids people from pointing that out. Well, thank you very much, Richard. It's been great to speak with you. So I recently spoke with uh, Dr. Ghada Karmi and Huda Amouri. I began by asking Huda why she felt that it was important to feature in this documentary and what was significant about it. Yeah, I think um, for me, it was I was pleased to be asked to be on the show. I was nervous because I think when you're talking about anti-Semitism and how it's been used and weaponized um, to stop voices in support of Palestine, it is not it's not something that is um, is 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 easy to talk about. Um, but I was pleased that they recognized that the Palestinian voice was being erased in that whole process during labor. And then it was important to bring it in, into the show and to show the context that, you know, often, uh, often these, these uh, accusations of anti-Semitism or the weaponization of it is targeted to stop policies which support the Palestinian people. Um, and when I was involved in labor, it was, it was despite the fact that I, um, that my, my mother, who was Iraqi, you know, she, she did not support um, Labour before Corbyn because of obviously what Tony Blair did in Iraq. But she was very supportive of Corbyn. And, and as a result, I ended up getting involved and in trying to push policies which were favourable for the Palestinian people, like the arms embargo uh, between Britain and Israel. And there was a great opportunity. And I think that um, during that time, that opportunity by was being taken away by people who did not want 
to see uh, policies in support of Palestine. So I was pleased to be able to contribute um, the other side of the story that was erased during that time, um, during Corbyn's time in Labour and, and after. Well, thank you, Huda. You know, for me and for many other people around the UK, this, um, this documentary was shocking. We're talking about the biggest leaks in, in the British uh, history of politics. I, I came to the UK in, uh, in 2019, just before the elections in the UK took place. And uh, I remember seeing in London banners about the election and vote Labour, vote Palestine. And Jeremy Corbyn was was very interesting for us Palestinians because we had lots of hopes uh, for his era if elected. For you as Palestinian, Palestinian and British in the UK, how did you feel about him? What was different about Jeremy Corbyn? And uh, how did his leadership make the Palestinians feel in the UK? Well, speaking for myself, and I would think every Palestinian living in, in, in Britain, uh, Jeremy Corbyn's uh, election to the leadership of a major British political party, uh, knowing his uh, position on Palestine, on his knowing his support for Palestinian rights, was really wonderful. Uh, I honestly, I, I have to say, um, we felt tremendous hope. We we thought finally we're turning a corner uh, on Palestine, and uh, of course, you know, one began to think forward. You thought, what if he, this is Corbyn, becomes elected British Prime Minister? How, what does that mean? Well, what it means is that for the first time ever, we have a major political figure um, uh, in Europe, in Europe, uh, who supports the Palestinians. That was such a wonderful thought uh, that uh, we really began to feel, finally, it's gonna happen for us. Uh, and of course, um, you know, the, the, by the same token, the disappointment, the sadness, the unhappiness, and the anger that we felt about his fall, his, can I say, fabricated, manipulated um, fall from power uh, was just as acute. Hoda, how did you feel about it and what was your views? Yeah, I mean, I think it's very similar to what's already been said, but just to be specific, you know, it meant that there was, it was a vehicle for change and, and Corbyn was someone who was supportive of the Palestinian people and it meant that there was a mechanism where Palestinians and, 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 and our allies could push policies in support um, of, of our liberation. And that included the arms embargo and in 2019, the a Labour Party manifesto was the only manifesto ever for a British political party which clearly stated that if they were in power they, they would impose an arms embargo between Britain and Israel and that would have been the first sanctions of its kind from Britain which is so significant because of the imperial history of Britain and and its, and its um, you know present tense imperialism in Palestine and other countries and um, and I think to see that we were very close to that. Um, but at the same time, I think the, the fall of Corbyn 
represents how others, other interests and other, other lobby groups were not willing to allow that to happen. And a lot of what we saw in the documentary was part of ensuring things like that did not happen through the political uh, process. But, you know, Corbyn was um, an exception to the rule because I think normally uh, Palestinians, you know, we don't normally have much of a choice about who to vote for, especially now when everyone claims to be a Zionist. Uh, you, could, you know, how are we going to ever vote for a Zionist? I will never do that. And I'm sure many others wouldn't. Um, but Jeremy Corbyn was an exception to that. And, and, um, and that's probably why he faced such a strong backlash during, it is why he faced such a strong backlash during his time um, as leader of the Labour Party and, and now. Well, indeed, he had a huge backlash. Uh, mm -hmm. Thank you. When, when I was watching this um, documentary, something actually stood out for me, which was, uh, which was a clip by Halima Khan. And she said that the word Palestine was used, to was used as a search term by uh, the party staffers for, uh, to find members of, to potentially investigate for suspension or even expulsion from the Labour Party. We were instructed to scour through Facebook pages and social media pages of individuals who we were looking for anti-Semitic material for. The word Palestine was included as a search term which was the thing that alarmed me the most. We would act almost immediately to any inquiries that would come in from the Jewish Chronicle or Jewish News, um, even if it was, you know, at close of play. We would often get instructed by the directors to just stay behind so we can take action on those, those individuals. So for me, this, this uh, video um, was a bit shocking because I also talked with, with some uh, friends who were suspended from the Labour Party and, and they feel that a huge sense of intimidation and they feel that they're being um, silenced when it comes to Palestine. Have you felt the same and how do you feel? With, with these sorts of operations, what you do is that you make a term that you want uh, outlawed and, and you want to become the object of censorship, you make it a dirty word. Uh, we know very well that this has been done with socialism, for example. Uh, in this country, um, after a, a, a very long uh, fight from, from the right, uh, we arrived at a point where the word socialist was somehow an insult. Now, the same thing was happening with the word Palestine. And it's exactly what Israel dreams of. It's what inspires Israel because if you make even mention of the word Palestine, if you make that uh, a dirty term, a term you can't use, then you're halfway there. But, you know, because people are nervous, they start to do self-censorship which is, again, a classic marker of this kind of operation. Thank you. What about you, Huda? Yeah, I, again, I'm not necessarily shocked because I think it was quite obvious at the time that people were being targeted for supporting, or being strong supporters of the Palestinian people in the Palestine cause, um, and that it was intended to silence, uh, to silence any support for Palestine. And I think it just echoes 
when we say that it was made to be a toxic environment for people like ourselves, for people who supported uh, the liberation of Palestine, and that the intention was to silence any voices in support of Palestine. Um, quite it's, it's very, very obvious that, you know, imagine the, you know, the name of your country is a search term for racism when it's been subject to, um, subject to you know, brutal, uh, a brutal Zionist regime displacing Palestinians and oppressing them for um, for over seventy four years, and and Palestine has used a search term for 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 racism against against Jews. I mean, it's ridiculous, and I think anyone with common sense would see how um, how wrong that was and how, how racist actually it is towards Palestinians and to the pal people of Palestine. But again, it's not necessarily surprising actually it's, it's almost a relief to see it laid out and for us to know that actually this is what was happening and that it was it was politically motivated and I think that's the key thing because at the time if you were to say that these accusations were politically motivated you would be attacked um you know you'd probably be attacked for for most things but um but now when we can reflect on it we have more of a voice to be able to call it out for for what it is, and this documentary shows the political nature of these attacks, and that they, and then a lot of them weren't genuine. It was politicized. Yeah, I just want to add quickly. Look, the other side of this story is that this is evidence of how effective uh, the, the 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 friends of Palestine have been in promoting the cause of the Palestinians. It, it's that kind of thing really alarms Israel. It would be much better if everybody forgot about Palestinians. They no longer existed. The trouble is they exist very much and even more so uh, uh, in the support, popular, popular support for the Palestine cause. It's for that reason that Israel and its friends are even more alarmed. So they have to go to these lengths to fight it. So in a way, you could say it's rather a positive sign of how well the Palestine cause is doing. And I was wondering, is it racist to actually be a Palestinian? Is it, is it racism to mention Palestine on social media? This is something really alarming. So my question to you, uh, Dr. Ghada Karmi, the Labour Party consider itself as anti-racist party and one which historically stands with the working class and the oppressed people. So have the Labour Friends of Israel? Well, f first of all, the fact that you have a Labour Friends of Israel is quite honestly disgraceful. I mean, during the South Africa um, apartheid era, did you have uh, Friends of South Africa, Labour Friends of South Africa? A labor friends of apartheid uh, is did you of course not um why why is there a labor friends of israel at all so that's the first problem um the the this the, the second issue is that the labor party in many ways is really no longer the labor party class it classically used to be we know very well that from the present leadership now not uh, um, siding with the with the picket lines uh, uh, of the uh, railway workers and not not being willing to join the fight 
<clears throat> of the workers that are on strike is another betrayal of the of classic labor values so frankly while the present leadership stays um the labor party has changed and it in order for it to 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 go back to its roots to the anti-racist um uh, tradition the the standing with the workers with the oppressed and indeed the palestinians are among the oppressed until uh, unless that happens there really isn't much hope i think from the current labor party it grieves me to say it but we have to face facts it is indeed very sad to say uh, to hear you say that there is no hope for the current party so we have another clip here according to revelations in in the documentary the labor party has been conflating a uh, conflating a criticism of israel and a criticism of zionism and anti-semitism who is attacking our liberty i'll tell you who jews we can see real anti-semitism then there is also a lot of information in these disciplinary files where there is clearly no anti-semitism whatsoever there's one post that reads in memory of four little footballers rest in peace and i'm sure many people will recall um these four young kids 9 to 11 years old playing football on the beach who were shot dead by israeli forces Another example. We demand that international criminal court and the UN charge Benjamin Netanyahu in Israel for war crimes against humanity. Very similar. Put Israel on trial for war crimes. To suggest that this is somehow anti-Semitic is simply trying to avoid Israel being called out. for its appalling abuses in the occupied territories. I still remember the day when these four kids were killed and not only four kids in every war the 30 to 40% of the casualties in Gaza are actually children. So how does this make you feel watching this video? How has it affected the movement for the Palestinian rights in the UK? I mean we as Palestinians or British Palestinians who live here and we watch the news we hear the news children are being killed and then as we comment on these uh, events tragic events that take place in palestine someone might uh, scour our social media and and report that so how does that make you feel it's it was extremely frustrating to watch um to be honest and it's very upsetting to see um whenever we see Uh, the harm caused to Palestinians in Gaza or, or or anywhere for that for that matter but especially when you see how it is used as a way um and then it's called anti-semitic in some way you know that when what we're looking at here is is um is a war crime um and Israel is infamous for systematic war crimes against the Palestinian people and much worse um against them and it shows again that the attempts to say that these things are anti-semitic are just a way of ensuring that there is of trying to stop any support 
for this cause because if you didn't have this fogginess or this um, attacks by um, by in, in Israel's interests, then it would be completely clear. You know, there would be no doubt about it, and people would be up in arms all the time, and uh, would be campaigning for the rights of the Palestinian people, and they would ensure that this country isn't complicit in it. And I think that's a key thing as well, is that not only is it that people are being called anti-Semitic for sharing these posts, but this country has, um, you know, at that time had 10 Albert sites, Israel's largest arms firm, who are making the, the same components for the drones that killed those four boys on the beach in Gaza. And actually, when they kill people in Gaza, they use it and they say that these weapons are battle-tested battle-tested or combat-proven, meaning that the companies like Elbit are using this opportunity as a way to uh, as a way to develop their weapons and sell them on to other oppressive regimes. And Britain is a key part of that. Um, and so I think that not only is it disgusting because obviously it's all anti-Semitic, the, the, the only crime I can see there is what happened to the people in Gaza. And it has to be very, very clear but that also it's a it's a way of trying to distract away from the reality of what's really happening and where the outrage should be placed, um, which is in our own country's complicity in Britain and 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 what Israel is doing to the Palestinians all the time. And you know we have to remember that Britain and Israel work hand in hand to commit these crimes, and that's why it's so important that we don't allow this narrative to continue and we find other ways of fighting against it. Thank you. <clears throat> Dr. Ghada, I have a question to you. Um, many people, like the Zionists, have their definition for Zionism, and other people have a definition for Zionism. But for us Palestinians, what is Zionism? And is it just a benign ideology which supports Jewish self-determination? Or there is something more to it? Yeah, um, good question. Um, Zionism, uh, not just for me, for Palestinians, but for the whole world, Zionism is a racist, uh, fundamentally racist movement um, aiming to um, set up uh, a place, a state, for in which there would be a majority of Jews. I mean, that's what it is, okay? Now, I've, I've often said that if Zionism had, had left it at uh, that it was a movement which wanted to have a place in this world somewhere, call itself a state, uh, for uh, people who are Jews, um, I don't have an issue with that. That's fine. Um, the, the issue here is that they set up this place for Jews inside a country which was inhabited. And not only that, but at the expense of the natives of that country. That is what is uh, unforgivable. That is what makes Zionism anything but benevolent or benign. And uh, the way that um, the Zionists set about creating the place for Jews which involved expelling the native population, which involved uh, oppressing, suppressing, uh, waging a war against the native population. Uh, why? Because they're non-Jews. Now, that's racism. 
That's racism. And it has to be fought. So I can't stress too often that if you or any group in this world, let's take red-haired people, okay, uh, says we want a state for red-haired people, uh, we want self-determination for red-haired people, I say you're free. You're free to do that. But what you're not free to do is to do that in somebody else's country and at their expense. Thank you, Dr. Rada. This is very eloquent. So following, following up on this question, I have another question for you, Huda. The Palestinians say that they are the victims of Zionism, as it is applied on the ground. Aren't the Palestinians best placed to explain what Zionism means uh, in real terms today? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's not some, it's not, um, you can't just take a bunch of words from a, from the dictionary and say, well, this is what Zionism is. It's nothing to do with Palestinians, because obviously in reality, as Rada said, it's what it is in practice. And in practice, it means um, creating a Jewish homeland where the majority of the indigenous population were not Jewish. Uh, they are Palestinians who are being systematically forced out of their homes. I mean, I think to uh, Zionism means for Palestinians, it means having your home demolished or your, um, or your local village destroyed or being trapped in, in Gaza and having um, your rights taken, taken away from you and not knowing whether one day or the next you are going to face another attack by the occupier. It means for Palestinians in the diaspora or those in the refugee camps that they don't have the rights to return to their homes, but it means that any Jewish person anywhere in the world can have a right to live on the rubble of a Palestinian home. Um, so I think that, you know, for anyone to try and distinguish Zionism away from what is the reality on the ground and what Palestinians face is obviously false. Um, and Zionism is very clearly one of the worst forms of racism um, that you can practice and has ended up forming an apartheid state um, and worse over the Palestinian people, over the indigenous population of Palestine. And I, I, I don't understand how anyone could have the audacity to say that they were proud Zionists, as we recently heard um, both uh, Liz Truss, the current prime minister, and Keir Starmer, the uh, leader of the Labour Party, say. Thank you very much. Let's get back to Jeremy Corbyn. And my question to you is, if there was one thing you wish Jeremy Corbyn had done differently during uh, while he was leader, what that would be, Dr. Rada? Um, yeah, I'm quite clear about that. I, I so regret that Jeremy Corbyn was so um, peaceable, so accommodating to, um, to the other side. He, of course, I understand that this is a man of principle. He has a, a morals. He uh, he believes in in treating people with respect, but frankly, in this case, that was a big mistake. He should have stopped this nonsense uh, right from the very beginning. He a should have recognized uh, the hostility behind it and the aim of it, which was to get rid of him, and b he should have stopped it and nipped it in the bud right from the very start. 
He never should have had any truck with apologizing or trying to understand the other point of view because the other point of view was aimed at him and to destroy him. And I very much regret that he or the people around him didn't advise him, uh, um, it, it didn't advise him uh, wisely. Thank you. Going back to two years ago uh, when Jeremy Corbyn was suspended, I've been talking to some members of the Labour Party and many of them were actually lost hope, especially the, the Labour Party members who, uh, who support the Palestinian rights. So Huda, my question to you is, is there a space for a new organization in the UK which seeks to institutionalize British Palestinian voices so they can be heard uh, loudly and lead from uh, the front uh, to pushing for policy on matters which affect uh, which affect most which affect them most yes uh, i think that's massively lacking in in britain and i think for palestinians you often have to fight to have a voice on many platforms so i think actually having something where uh, palestinian voices is leading is necessary and just to touch on the other question um, asked before, I just wanted to add about Corbyn, that I think as well, it's, it's important to remember that at the time of Jeremy Corbyn's leadership, um, a lot of us, you know, he was, although we knew he was a supporter of Palestinian rights, and although we knew po policies were being pushed that we uh, favored, um, he was very quiet during his time on Palestine. And that was because he was being attacked all the time. And, um, and and I think he was getting bad advice. And part of me wishes that that he very early on stated that, um, talked about Palestine when talking about these attacks of anti-Semitism and made it clear because I don't think that came out. And it was people fighting for that narrative to be out there who really didn't have a platform. Um, so I think it's important to, to remember that as well. He wasn't extremely vocal on it. And maybe that's because of it was tactically it became uh, toxic for him to even talk about it. it. It felt extremely toxic at that time and that there was a lot of hypocrisy happening and that there was some, you know, Palestinian, the Palestinian cause was being used by some in order to benefit their platform because they did understand, like the doctor had said before, that actually being in support of Palestine was a positive thing for them because a lot of people do support Palestine, most people do. Um, but then at the same time, they would be stabbing Palestinians in the back. And I think we have to learn from that and never allow that kind of thing to happen again and not allow this kind of fake solidarity. And on that note, I think it's extremely important that Palestinian voices are raised um, because, because we have to start speaking for ourselves rather than letting people um, who don't have our best interests speaking for our, our cause and our name. The new leader has a very different view of the relationship between Israel and the Palestinians. Amnesty International recently released a report where they accused Israel of being an apartheid state. Yeah. That was embraced and supported by many members of your party, particularly on the, on the left. Um, do you agree with them? No. Um, I've been very clear about that, um, and that is not the Labour Party um, position. Um, Dr. Rada, how do you feel about uh, about this clip of uh, Keri Sarmar, the leader of the Labour Party? Is he an ally of the Palestinian people or indeed a human rights advocate more generally? 
Well, clearly he's not. Uh, I mean, he, it's it's um, extraordinary that a man who is a trained lawyer um, and who has experience in the field can actually speak in this way. I mean, I don't. I really don't um, understand um, why he says what he says. It, it, apart from the fact that uh, this situation of apartheid has been described in great detail by several um, internationally recognized organizations, including Amnesty, including B'Tselem, which is an Israeli human rights organization. All these um, institutions have produced not just a report, but a report with detailed evidence of apartheid practices, which Israel, um, uh, the way that Israel rules the Palestinians. So it doesn't seem to me that on a basis of fact that he uh, was, um, uh, was correct in what he said. Now, obviously, the only explanation that one can have is that uh, he's lying through his teeth. Why? Because he's afraid of antagonizing the pro-Israel lobby. That's the only explanation. And obviously, I don't respect that. Uh, and I find it extremely disappointing and in fact quite shameful for a, a person in his position to barefacedly say uh, no this is not apartheid that Israel practices uh, against the Palestinians when it so evidently is. Thank you. So in his speech given to um Labour Party uh, to the Labour Friends of Israel in November 2021, Starmer conflated anti-Zionism with anti-Semitism, rejecting BDS and implying it is racist. And he said Israel made the desert flower. How do you feel about this, Huda? I think he made it very clear that that that, that conflation is extremely um, wrong and is used for to further political ideology that oppresses the Palestinian people systematically. This is why I say that Corbyn was an exception, because we've seen this from, you know, basically every prime minister or every leader of the Labour Party, that they have been uh, supportive of, an, of Israel's apartheid state. And, they, and I can, and I think that what happened to Corbyn meant that people like Keir Starmer made sure that they were supporting Israel because they wanted to be in power and they didn't want attacks against them, like what happened to Jeremy Corbyn. Um, I, I don't know what his personal views are. I think he's spineless and I don't, I don't it's, it's not very clear. Um, but I think he is just being, he's just going along with whatever he thinks will get him elected and to try and stay away from any, any attacks. And it's very clear that he is... Um, he is not a friend of the Palestinian people and that he is he's, he's capitulating to the demands of the Israel lobby. Um, and it seems like he's more than happy to do so. Um, and so I don't have much faith in him or to be honest, like, like I said, I think it's important to see Corbyn as an exception. And I don't think that's going to happen um, again anytime soon. And, and so we have to look for other routes despite outside of these political parties are these political leaders because they are um if you if you say that you are against bds you say that you're against sanctioning a state in order to get them to comply with international law and human rights as a human rights lawyer then what do you stand for 
Um, and so I think for, for, for us as Palestinians and for others who support the cause, I don't understand how anyone could support um, a man or a party who supports um, the oppression of the Palestinian people while claiming to be a friend of the Palestinian people. It, it, it's a contradiction in terms. Dr. Ghada, do you still believe that the Labour Party is a vehicle for a change when it comes to Palestine today? And if not, um, what can what can we do about it? Yeah, that's a very good question because it's really very difficult. It's very difficult. You see, if one, to be realistic, you can't uh, operate uh, in the political sphere unless you have some power. Uh, uh, clearly, the Palestinians have no formal power in Britain. Um, therefore, they need to be part of a, uh, a, a political institution which allows them to be able to exercise uh, their freedom of speech, etc. Now, traditionally, that would have been the Labour Party, and certainly under Jeremy Corbyn. Now, given the current Labour Party, given the current leadership, and the, uh, uh, um, the desperation almost to um, uh, appear to be friends of Israel, there, there is no way that the current Labour Party uh, will be the vehicle for that. Now, what, what possibilities are there for change? I, I have to say that we as Palestinians would be joining uh, all, uh, the majority of people on the left of politics in this country who are also scratching their heads and wondering what's the answer to the same question. How can they reclaim the party from the, from the right where it's been to, it, to where it has been hijacked? Uh, and it's a, a, a huge question. Um, uh, I, I know that I'm not really giving the, 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 a, a clear answer because it's very difficult to see uh, how we can do it except through um, joining uh, a political party which can um, help us to uh, apply some of the things that we need um, living in this country. Currently, we only have the Labour Party, uh, flawed as it is. And I can only tell you the jury is out on whether you join such a flawed party and hope to make some change from the inside or whether you wait for a more favorable political environment. Thank you very much. So my other question is for both of you, but let's begin with you, Huda. Hoda, in, in light of this documentary, do you feel that the Labour Party is currently a safer place or a safer space for Palestinians to be, uh, to be members and to articulate the nature of their oppression or not? Uh, no, I, I don't. And I, and I also think it's important to remember that with Keir Starmer, the, he said all of these remarks about BDS despite the majority of his party voting in favour of boycott, divestment and sanctions. I think it was during his time as well. So he's going completely against the party in his kind of, in, and the, the party membership, because most people 
who are members of, of the Labour Party will be supportive of Palestine. Um, but I think when you have a, a leader like that, and I, I don't think he's much different to any other political leaders that the Labour Party have at the moment, um, then that, that, that goes against the party membership. Then it's, it's impossible to see what, what can you do? You know, if you go in and you vote and you exercise your right to so-called democracy in this country, then, um, then it will just be ignored. We already passed in, in the Labour Party um, conference for an arms embargo to, you know, for, to recognise the right of return to, um, for the boycott, divestment and sanctions movement. All of these things in favour of the Palestinian people, but yet again, they go against it every time. And I also, I think it's important to remember that before Corbyn, I mean, not immediately before, but but not not that it's not that recent history that Tony Blair was leader of the Labour Party and he went to invade Iraq alongside the US and they killed one million Iraqis in their name. This is a um, a party who does not have a great history when it comes towards supporting and and uh, and ending colonization in 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 the Middle East. And if, if in fact it has the opposite um, opposite history. Corbyn was an exception to this, but I don't think that we should be entertaining a party that has previously supported um, the killings of our, our siblings and today continues to support Israel's apartheid state. I can't give, I will not, you know, even if it's two pounds a month, uh, they will never get my money. Um, and I think that it's important that whilst it is difficult and we may feel politically homeless in a sense, that there, we are in a unique time where the policies aren't alone in that. I think there are a lot of young people who are disillusioned with politics altogether. And that provides a unique opportunity. And I think that the power we have will never come from the top. We will never get it through the political parties. We tried it and it didn't, it didn't work. And I would suggest that the power comes from the grassroots. And only when you have a swell from the grassroots then political leaders will change because they have to to stay relevant and in order to get voted in. And so I think our efforts have to be focused on the grassroots and like us in Palestine Action, we, the political road was closed. So we took direct action and we continued to against Albert systems. And in the past year, we have shut down two of the um, Israeli armed sites and we plan to continue. But I think more work has to be done through the grassroots at this, at this point in time. Thank you. Dr. Ghada, you just said that uh, a change can happen from the inside. But do you still believe that the Labour Party can be a safer place for Palestinians and there is hope that Palestinians can change from the inside? I personally um, don't feel that there's hope uh, given the state of the current, uh, the current state of the party. I don't feel there is any hope. Um, uh, so long as the, the present leadership uh, is around and uh, has the position that it has on Israel, no, there isn't. I think that the you see the difficulty is that, as I said before, you you can't operate in a vacuum. You you even if you can speak out and write and make big noise. It, nothing very much can happen unless you have some kind of formal power. That, that is the problem. Uh, and so um, I'm very inclined 
to think that Palestinians should wait and see. They should uh, continue, of course, all the activism, people like Uda and her colleagues who are absolutely wonderful, doing wonderful work. Um, all that should continue. Uh, but in terms of uh, formal uh, political action, uh, a formal political affiliation, I I'm afraid we, we have to wait. It may not be as long as uh, people fear, by the way, because the current um, labor leadership has antagonized a lot of people. Uh, and so the, the future is not assured. Thank you. So my last question, and I'm sorry, maybe we exceeded our time limit. But my, la my last question for both of you is what should progressive parties in the West and, put, and specifically the Labour Party in the UK be implementing today as policy uh, towards Palestine if they truly respect human rights and international law? Let's begin with you, Huda. I think it's very clear. I would say sanctions, sanctions and sanctions again. And I think that's the, that is what Palestinians have been calling for for decades. And in order to, um, to try and change the reality of Palestinians, you know, Israel's apartheid regime can't operate in isolation. And in order to change the reality, they have to be sanctioned in, in, every, in every possible way. Um, an arms embargo, you know, trade, a trade embargo, we have to have, it has to be completely made unacceptable um, and, and impossible for them to operate because people understand that you cannot, um, you know, it's 2022, you can't have an apartheid state and continue the oppression of the Palestinians. And I think that is what's needed to change to try and create um, a ripple effect across the world um, to sanction the apartheid states. Dr. Rada? Uh, yes, I think you see, if you want to help the Palestinians, you have to deal with Israel. Um, I know that one might be expected to say, you know, you do this or that or the other for the Palestinians. I say no. Concentrate your energies on Israel because it is Israel is the cause. And therefore, you have to deal with Israel. Uh, sanctions is a brilliant idea, of course, and many other things that a progressive party can think of doing if it keeps its eye clearly on the target. And the target is Israel, its actions, its supporters, uh, and its uh, war against the Palestinians. That's what Palestinians need. And I, I really think if you could get a party which seriously faced the issue of Israel. Because, you know, the issue of Israel is not just about Palestinians. It's about a state which is aggressive, which is acting in a very aggressive manner in the region, a volatile region. Therefore, it constitutes a danger uh, to world peace. It's not just Palestinians. Therefore, I say, to be a progressive party who want to help the Palestinians, you have to address the question of Israel. So there we have it. Those were wonderful voices of Dr. Ghada Karmi and Huda Amouri, two Palestinians living here in the UK. And now we turn to Gaza, where we hear from Isam Adwan enduring 15 years of Israel's brutal siege. Can you, Isam, tell us a little bit about how life uh, is like on the ground in Gaza today, and what have you lived through the last 10 years or, or, or more? And for those people who don't know 
anything about Gaza who or who are unaware of the situation in Gaza. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you tell us if the situation is getting any better? Okay, thank you, Ahmad. Uh, you have been like great friends to me. We've lived together in Gaza, I mean, three years before. And it's really good to be here again to share my thoughts and share my experience about how I live in Gaza as a father, as a journalist. Uh, so the situation, I mean, I don't want to be pessimist about my answer, but the situation has been escalating in the past 15 years since the blockade started. Uh, it's been deteriorating. I mean, hardly for the people, they barely can find uh, enough water and food and job and more particularly hope for a better future for their children to live with. Uh, the situation we've witnessed in the past 10 years, in the past 15 years, uh, four or five brutal wars launched on Gaza with hundreds of people, including civilians, children and women, uh, dying with Israeli bombardment. Uh, the electricity as regularly for the past 15 years uh, has been cutting uh, at, at least eight hours a day in the normal cases, and it, it exceeds more than 16 hours a day in the worst scenarios when the bombardment starts. The medical equipment, medical expertise deteriorating because uh, because there is no jobs, of course, for the new generations to be employed uh, at hospitals. They tend to, uh, to go to other countries to work and to, let's say, to start a family. So, uh, from different dimensions, the situation of Gaza has been has been escalating, and people cannot really keep up with the understanding of the situation. The increasing of the PTSD and this was the suicidal ideation, on the other hand, is eating people alive. This, what Gaza has been living, I wish that I can provide a positive, a more positive answer about that. It's the situation is becoming better. It's not. Unfortunately, it's not. It's becoming worse and worse day by day. And for those people, they, they are not dying because of those. A bombardment launched, those airstrikes hit, and those bullets shoot, they are dying because, again, of the lack of food and water, the lack of hope, the lack of jobs. People are dying in the seas and the oceans, trying to seek a better life as refugees in different countries. And we are witnessing, uh, day by day, tens and hundreds of Palestinians dying in Gaza, in the West Bank, in the occupied territories, in the diaspora as well, because the suffering of Palestinians is not only limited to the people of Gaza, but every Palestinian, wherever they are and whatever their circumstances are. Well, thank you, Isam. And it's really sad to hear about this dire situation in Palestine. How do you feel that the Palestinians uh, are affected by the role played by uh, the UK politics? Does Britain have a responsibility to support the Palestinians today, given the history that we had before with Britain? Mm-hmm. Yes, definitely. This is a pretty good answer. This is a pretty good question because it all started by the British granting a land it doesn't own to people who only brought slaughtering, injustice, uh, forcible expulsion for Palestinian in, for indigenous Palestinian communities back then in, in, in the land of Palestine. I believe, as a Palestinian lives in Gaza, uh, the British government is accountable for what is going on. The British government should be held accountable for those human rights violations because they started this inhumane, discontinuous slaughter of the Palestinian communities and the, on the Palestinian lands. Thank you, Assam. Uh, last year in 2021 May, more than 200,000 people marched in London in support of Palestinian rights. And I, I remember that these uh, these protests, they were recorded and they were uh, clips were circulated all over social media. 
And we Palestinians, we're very proud of these protests and the amount of people who came uh, to support the Palestinian rights. Many people believe that there is a shift in the UK and the shift that uh, mm -hmm. this shift, thanks to social media, uh, is happening. Assam, do you think, do, do Palestinians in Gaza see, uh, have seen these, um, these uh, eclipse of these uh, people protesting in the streets of London? And if yes, how did this make them feel? I think, I think this, I think it's really, it's really strong for them to see that. I mean, we are struggling as Palestinians, wherever we're living, we are struggling to have a glimpse of hope that people are aware of our suffering, people are protesting, people are demanding the governments to act properly, people are demanding the governments to be held accountable for supporting Israel and providing full impunity for those human rights violations. Uh, as a person, as merely a person, I feel encouraged to keep up with my work because with every written story that I work on, with every written with every documentary that I work on i i suffer the ptsd i suffer the lack of hope that this continuous chain of of suffering is not going to be broken by any chance and witnessing people protesting british communities protesting on behalf of palestinians demanding accountability and demanding justice is giving me encourage and giving me hope that something is changing and something is even if even if slowly I believe as a Palestinian Ahmed, it's so unfortunate to say so. I believe that the change, I would say the tangible change is not happening in my lifetime. But why I am working so hard along with you and the hundreds of journalists and activists for Palestinians, we're working on this to make a better future for our children and our coming generations. Yes, with this belief that I have, it's not happening in my lifetime. It's sometimes disappointing me, sometimes discouraging me. But witnessing those protests is actually one of the methods that I feel encouraged through. So it's very essential to witness them. Well, I hope we will see um, a shift, a huge shift in the near future. Um, I saw when I was watching the documentary, and I'm sure you also watched the documentary of Al Jazeera, The Labour Files, something that struck me mm -hmm. is uh, what Halima Khan uh, said. And she said that Palestine as a word, was used as a search term by party staffers to find members to potentially investigate uh, for suspension or even expulsion from the, the Labour Party. And you uh, earlier mentioned the, the dire situation that we are, that you are facing in, in Palestine and the killings, the war, the aggression, the march of return, return protests that we will come on to later. And then you see that in the UK, Labour Party, which is supposed to be the anti-racist party in the UK, they're using Palestine as a search term. How does that make you feel? It makes me feel horrible because as, as Palestinians, I believe we know what censorship is. And what censorship is, is that there are specific terms that whoever expresses them, our posts will be blocked, our accounts will be shut down, suspended and so many other things. It's really terrifying to imagine that it goes to these limits, that even Palestine as an identity, as a country, as a statehood, as, a, as an ID for people, is that it's, it's, it, it represents a term for anti-Semitism. This is what Israel has been doing, honestly saying, since 1948, is how much they are, they are connecting 
what Israel is doing uh, as an act of, of Zionism, of course, to what they are claiming of being anti-Semitism. I, I don't know what anti-Semitism is at this point because I have Jewish friends. I have I have befriended lots of Jewish communities. They are 100% supportive of the Palestinian struggle, of the Palestinian rights, and they are demanding Israel to be held accountable. They are demanding this apartheid to be taken down. So it's it feels horrible to imagine that it also happens. It also applies to those who are making the shift to, or those who are making the change inside the Liberal Party, which is supposed to be, as you said, they, that they are not racist, they are supportive, they are understanding. And to imagine that this shift started in 2015 by the new elections inside the Liberal Party, that the shift that people are starting to recognize the Palestinian suffering and with all those, those methods of spying, of conspiracy happening in, inside the Liberal Party limit, to limit the support provided both for the Palestinians actually horrible. Because after 74 years, as a Palestinian, I believe it doesn't really need much of understanding of the politics. It doesn't really need much of understanding of history. It needs just a look up to the human cases, to the humanitarian crisis that Israel is, is, is causing to the Palestinian communities, indigenous Palestinians of the West Bank, of the Gaza, of the diaspora as well, merely looking at those scenes of human rights violations will give you just what needs to be given is that Israel is an apartheid, a colonizer regime, and that's it. And there is no further explanation that could be provided to that. All right, Islam, you have mentioned something about the March of Return, uh, to which you and I participated uh, three years ago. And, you know, I lived the 25, uh, 25 years of my life in, in Gaza, and I've experienced many aggressions in Gaza to which I lost my brother. But here, um, while I'm speaking to you from London, what stands out in my memory as the embodiment of injustice that has been inflicted on Palestine is scenes from the March of, of Return. And I still remember vividly these scenes where a, a child who was only 11 years old was killed right in front of me. He was only two meters away from me. He was shot in the head for just being there in the March of Return. He did not do anything. He did not throw stones. He did not do anything. But he was shot dead. And more than 300 Palestinians were killed. 10,000 Palestinians were injured. And you know all these details. It was horrific scenes that we have seen. However, during that March of Return, I was surprised to see that the Labour Party has been conflating criticism of Israel and Zionism with anti-Semitism leading to uh, the suspension or even expulsion of members. After six years of rigorous investigations, the Labour Party found sufficient evidence to open anti-Semitism-related investigations into less than half of 1% of its membership. That figure includes many of the interviewees in this film. They have created an incredibly hostile environment for anybody 
including any Jew who is in any way critical of Israel. To be accused of racism, to be accused of anti-Semitism, is frankly terrifying. Uh-huh. How do you feel about that? It's really terrible. It's really terrible to feel that they are bargaining the blood of innocent civilians, Palestinians, not particularly to limit the context at the context of the Great Marsh of Return. Because as I said before, there are times you think Gaza is living normal and it's not normal. People are still dying. They're dying because of the siege. They're dying because they don't have the right to travel abroad for medical purposes, for education purposes as well. And I believe your story is one example of them, Ahmad. And there are lots of human rights violations. People are dying dying because of them. And to imagine those human rights violations are bargained for a political gain. It's absolutely disappointing, at least. It's actually disappointing to imagine that the killing of uh, of your brother is bargained and claimed that that any act to show that your brother uh, didn't deserve to be killed would be called anti-Semitic. Uh, to imagine that our uh, us as activists defending the killing of the innocent child of the two, four years, nine years innocent child killed before your eyes, and you've spoke about that on the media, you will be censored. You will be accused of hate speech. You will be accused of being anti-Semitic as well. To imagine that those stories, hundreds and thousands of those stories of the Great Marshall Pre-Return, of the War of 2008, the War of 2011 and 12, the War of 2014, 2021, 2022nd, and the list goes on. The list will keep going on. To imagine that you're speaking about those violations, I mean, broadly speaking about them, just broadly speaking, you're not even you're not even going into details to talk about that Israel caused this, Israel bombardment, civilian neighborhoods and things like these, you will be censored will be accused of being anti-Semitic. Imagining that those innocent lives, including yours, of course, will be bargained in a political dirty play, it's really devastating to me. To imagine that at some points, at some points, the killing of my child will be bargained, and if I spoke about it, will be called anti-Semitic. To imagine that all these human rights violations, including violations against children and women and the press, including the, the killing of Shirin Abu Akhle, vividly speaking and clearly showing that it, it, it she was wearing the press vest and with the forensic analysis showed that she was targeted by the Israeli sniper intentionally. We have seen the reactions, falsification, accusations of being anti-Semitic, and the list goes on. It's really devastating to imagine that you're living in this cycle of nonsense, of at least to be described as nonsense. Thank you, Isam. How do you define Zionism? Is it just a benign ideology which supports Jewish self-determination? Or do you think there is something more to it? I, I think Zionism is manipulating the Jewish existence in the Palestinian lands because the Jewish existed peacefully with the rest of ethnicities, Muslims, Christians, and different people, different races. And to imagine this is politically played against the Palestinian indigenous Palestinians to be used for the killing and slaughtering Palestinian communities of different ethnicities again. It's happening since 1948. This is no more a religious-based activity. It's purely political to replace indigenous Palestinians with Zionist settlers. So it's a power that eliminates my existence, uh, not particularly as a Palestinian, but as a human being, above all things. 
and it happened to my village of Barbara. They lived there, they found for decades, and in, 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 in just a few days, they were killed, they were forcefully expelled, and, 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 the, and of course, it happened to the rest of Palestine. So I don't, I, I believe the linkage between Zionism and Semitism, it happened because Israel determined the propaganda to act like so. It, it promotes that any criticism towards Israel, against Israel, uh, talking about the human rights violations, will be called of being anti-Semitic. And it's not at all, it's just anti-Zionism. And Zionism is purely against humanity, not just against Palestinians. As you can see, the New Labour Party uh, leader conflated anti-Zionism with anti-Semitism. He rejected the BDS, implying it is racist. And all he said is that Israel made the desert flower. So to begin with, Assam, was it actually a desert? And no, at all. I mean, my grandfather, Oda, whose name translates into return. So you can summarize everything about my life. He used to tell me, Isam, you can't believe how beautiful our lands uh, are. You can see rows of orange and olive trees that you are you your eyes cannot reach the end of them. So I don't think he knows anything about Palestine. Yes, I I was not there, but I have hundreds of stories I have been told and I enjoyed imagining inside my head. I've never visited Palestine, never visited Jerusalem. I was denied this right. But I, I believe the, it, it wasn't at all a desert. Palestinians have lived there, farmed there, lived for decades, had families there, and they were slaughtered. They, they were merely slaughtered and replaced with Zionist settlers at that point. So claiming that Israel changed this from a desert to a flowering land is an absolute ignorant. This is the media description of what he said. But on the other level, is it sorry? No. It has been flowering even before Israel existed. It has been flowering, and it, Palestine enjoyed lots of natural resources that the Palestinians nowadays they don't enjoy. We are we have limited sources of, of water. We have limited sources of goods. We have limited sources of gas and things like that. We don't even have any sense of self determination to use those natural resources. So Israel used what uh, what was there already. So I don't I, I so the mere description of what he said is just ignorance. He didn't he doesn't know anything about what he said. And responding on behalf of the Labour Party that linking the Zionism with Semitism is also another level of ignorance because it's a purely after 74 years of this inhumane continuous occupation. I mean it's not his job to determine if Israel is an apartheid regime or not. There are prominent international human rights organizations, including Amnesty, and they recognize Israel as an apartheid regime for several decades. They are currently showing the human rights violations against Gazans, against people of the West Bank, and against people of, of the diaspora as well. So I don't think it's his job to determine whether Israel is an apartheid regime or not. I believe it's a duty of a, of a human rights activist, and they are doing it lately for the past 10 years they're doing it properly, including the Amnesty's recognitions, Oxford's recognitions, and the list goes on of those prominent human rights centers and human rights research activists uh, deeming Israel as an apartheid regime. I believe he should listen to them because they are the people in duty doing what should be done.
on behalf of, of human rights violations. How much does he know about the Palestinian human rights violations? I believe not. Even if he did, he would just ignore them as the lipophiles uh, 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 clarified. As I'm speaking of flowers and roses, I, I believe you remember when we were young, before the siege in Gaza, we were taught that Gaza, that the business of exporting flowers and roses to Europe was a blooming business in Gaza. But that's not the case. We don't have this business anymore because of the siege and the occupation in Gaza. Mm -hmm. So does Israel allow Gaza to flower? Mm -hmm. And this is this is actually a good question, just to call the comparison of the ignorance that he just said about the Palestinians. Gaza is considered one of the most important ports of exporting flowers. So <laughs> imagine that Palestinians do not, not, do not know anything about flowering or farming and things like this, and Israel brought all these technologies and, you know, understandings to Palestinians, it's just ignorant because yeah. the Palestinians have lived there for decades farming and flowering the land and it wasn't a visit at all. Well, is it the same as it was before exporting okay. flowers? Because I've heard some reports say that mm -hmm. the, ex the export, this business declined exponentially. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah that's, that's, that's ultimately true. Because of the siege, of course, they are denying specific machines for flowering and for farming the land, for you know, maintaining the temperature inside those warehouses and things like these. I'm not actually, I'm not actually expert in, in this domain, but I believe yes, you're right. They have, there have been lots of limitations, not particularly to flowering industry, but also to farming in general. Uh, several diseases, as far as I have been following the past five years, several diseases of plants and land, uh, they have been increasing because of the lack of expertise, the lack of material, the lack of uh, treatment and which Israel denies the lack of machines, of course, as well, that Israel denies on a regular basis, not particularly on the medical level, but also on the industry level, the economic and financial level, of course. <clears throat> Perhaps we should talk more about this de-development of Gaza in, in, in a following uh, a live show with you, because even before the siege on Gaza, Israel adopted a policy of de-developing Gaza and stifling the Gaza economy, so Gaza doesn't bloom. So basically, um, Israel did not make the desert bloom. In fact, it's doing exactly the opposite, the opposite of that. Thank you very much for joining us today. We will be back with a new content for you all very soon. Bye-bye.